Um, in the 90s, uh, late 90s, I, I started my college career, my undergrad, and then eventually grad. Uh, I went to the University of Toledo for pharmacy uh, originally, and that's where I met my wife, and uh, kind of at times I majored more in hunting and fishing than I did in pharmacy. Um, some of you guys kind of know how that, how that goes. Uh, very early on, uh, I was lucky enough to get connected with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Have you ever heard of Campus Crusade? Now they call it, it's, it's changed names now, they, uh, because if you go to Europe, uh, the word crusade doesn't go over so well, and so they, they call it crew now. Uh, my first year living off of uh, campus, I lived with, with uh, four uh, amazing godly young men. And what was fascinating is of all the things that happened in college, I think probably the least impactful thing was my education. The most impactful thing was the people that God somehow coordinated to be around me because it seemed like... Um, the conversations that I had, University of Toledo is a, a state college, a secular college, and the conversations that I had were, were not what you would really expect or kind of your stereotypical uh, state college or secular college conversations. They always, well, not always, but a lot of times revolved around faith and about church and family, things that we believed. And I was very lucky to live with some guys after my first semester, live with some guys that were just absolutely um, amazing instruments of God to, to help change my life. Oftentimes our conversations were, yeah, about daily happenings in campus, but about our faith and what we could do to spur one another on. We even did devotions together. Now that's kind of weird. A group of four guys in a college campus on a state college doing devotions and talking about God, and it was all the hand of God. Um, There's four of us. Each of us came from different faith traditions. Uh, Tom. Tom was a Baptist. Uh, Josh. Josh had uh, Catholic roots, but then at that current time, he was attending a, a non-denominational church. Um, you had Buzz. Buzz was Pentecostal, and if you could imagine, um, having a Baptist and a Pentecostal in the same room was kind of fun at times. And then there was me. Um, I grew up in a small denomination that very few people had heard of because of how small it was. It was called Evangelical Congregational, um, actually kind of a sister denomination to the United Brethren. If you know some United Brethren history, which that's what Praise Point is, we've, the EC and the UB have had some connection points along the way. But regardless, uh, we were going around the room one evening talking about what made each of our denominations unique and why we could appreciate and what we might not agree with exactly with each of, with each of the, the different denominational teachings. And, and I remember Buzz asking me one night, so Brad, what does the EC believe? I had no clue. I, I didn't grow up really in a in a teaching teaching church. I grew up in a in a good church, but not in a church that produced the product that I knew what we believed. And it was because of Buzz's question, and Buzz has actually gone home to be with the Lord now about uh, 
three or four months before I was to do his wedding, I did his funeral. And uh, God had used him in an amazing, amazing way in my life. And it was kind of funny how that one question catapulted me into a direction that really continues today. That I, f- from that point forward, I came to just, it clicked in me. I got to know what I believe and why I believe it. Why do I do all this stuff that I do? You know what I'm saying? Like, for all of our faith traditions and our backgrounds, and here at Praise Point, I know that we have people who come from so many different backgrounds. We have Lutheran, people who have Lutheran backgrounds. We have people who have uh, Catholic backgrounds. We have people who have Methodist backgrounds. We have people who have Nazarene backgrounds. We have people who have EC backgrounds. We have people who have United Brethren backgrounds. We have uh, all the whole spectrum, Pentecostal backgrounds. And, and why do we believe what we believe? And I think that one of the things that has happen, happened is that many churches aren't effective at teaching the Scriptures. That's why I, I, hope that, I hope that if anything happens on a Sunday morning, that at least we teach and we hear the Scriptures together, that we just really get into the Word of God and that we can know what we believe and why we believe it, because finding the truth really matters. Finding the truth of these different things really, really matters. Jesus, talking about spiritual freedom, said that knowledge of His Word and keeping ourselves rooted in His Word will provide spiritual freedom from being enslaved to sin and false teaching. He said that those who are free in me are free, what? Indeed. It's because spiritual truth matters. What, what you believe matters. And all of us, at the end of the day, really believe something about God or don't believe something about God. You know, we may not tout it as theology, but the way that we live our lives proves in, or is evidence of what we genuinely believe. The way that we talk, the way that we act, uh, the things that we do, the people that we spend time with, how we um, live within our family units, all of those things reflect how we believe or what we believe. And, and then you have these things that have become very institutionalized, at least here in the West, and that's the church. The church has become so institutionalized that at times it, it seems like we're kind of running in circles and becomes program-driven and this-driven and that-driven. And Really, at the end of the day, what we are doing is we're a staging ground as a church to come back so that we can have good, solid teaching. That's what synagogues, by the way, were in ancient Israel and in, modern, uh, or in uh, the modern world. Synagogues where Jews go, it's not a house of worship. That was the temple. Synagogues are a place of teaching. And that's really what churches need to be. In fact, when Jesus uh, left, do you remember the Great Commission? Go therefore and make, he didn't say make Christians, that's not our job. He said make disciples. What does disciple making involve? It involves teaching. We need to know why we believe, and what we believe. Did you, know, did you know this, that false teaching, bad teaching, is really a disease? It really is. There, there is. There's good teaching, and then there's bad teaching. 
What is the bad teaching? The bad teaching is oftentimes what relies much more upon people's opinions than it does the solid Word of God. It relies upon sometimes even twisting the Word of God. And really, that was the first sin recorded in the Bible. It wasn't the sin about Adam and Eve. Yeah, that was the first sin of humanity. But the first sin that we can identify in the Bible is when the serpent, when the serpent being Satan, takes the Word of God and distorts it. And Satan, by the way, is doing the same thing today. And there are false teachers that unfortunately have made it somehow into pulpits today, and they're teaching bad things. They're teaching things that so many people are being led astray by, and I, I, find, it, I find it really sad. Um, not just sad, but really tragic in the spiritual and eternal scope of things. What does a disease do? Think about it. What's a disease do? It makes you sick, and then it can kill you, right? That's what a disease does. That's what false teaching does. It makes you sick spiritually, and it can lead to ultimate death, spiritual death, because people who are ultimately led astray spiritually can, they can end up in hell if they don't understand the truth of God's Word. So I want to give you, through the next several weeks, something that I think is very solid teaching, good food, no disease mixed in with it, and I want to teach you about God's great salvation in relation to none of us who have been called to God will ever be orphans, just like what Bonnie talked about. Uh, the, the goal of, in my mind, the goal of Sunday mornings is not to produce a bunch of theologians. I mean, we all do theology. Theology is just what you believe about God. But at the end of the day, practical theology is taking what you believe and applying it and living your life. And what you believe about this topic that we're going to talk about here for the next several weeks will inform and it will form the way that you live your life. And it's really about this, how do I know for sure? I mean, how do I know that I know that I know that I know in my knower for sure that I am genuinely saved from sin and ultimately hell? Really, at the end of the day, let's face it, if you've been in the church or if you've been a Christian for any period of time, that question has somehow come to your heart or your mind. Think about this. We've been adopted. We have been loved by an unseen God. In fact, Jesus even acknowledges that God is spirit and that he's unseen. That makes it so tough for us to be able to, to sometimes know how to love God, and then this unseen God, we, we have his love letter, we have his message to us that we call the scriptures, and, and he's speaking to us. I've, I've had folks over the years say, boy, I really wish God was talking to me. Well, he does. All you need to do is read it. There's 66 love letters that he's given to you in this package that we call the Bible. It's the best thing out there for you. And this unseen God is speaking to us through this revealed word of God that we call the scripture, that we call the Bible. And sometimes, when something is unseen, and you maybe never have tasted or visited it in, in a, a sensory way, like we have our five senses, 
it becomes sometimes a question of, boy, is this stuff really real? I, I mean, can we be, let's be honest, sometimes those questions will come to the mind. Those are fair and, and legitimate questions. So I want to be able to take you to the Word for the next few weeks and begin to touch on how can you know that this stuff that we call salvation is real and then made real and made manifest directly in your life. And this is, by the way, only a foretaste of something we're going to do in about six months from now. In about January, February, we're going to do a series that we're going to go through Second Peter because Second Peter deals an awful lot with knowing that your salvation is real and genuine. But for now, we're just going to begin to get into this. Is my salvation that I think I have real? How you answer the question is, for a lot of people, they use feelings to interpret that question. Feelings has got to be the worst way to interpret that question. Because let's face it, one day your feelings can be, the next day, right? Next day, the next moment, depending on what's happening in your life, depending on what's going on. And, and so if, you're, if your security of your salvation is based on your feelings, you're going to be a basket case, to be quite honest. But there is something that God has given to us that's more powerful, more steady, more stable, absolutely unchangeable, as compared to feelings, and that's the truth, as revealed directly in His Word. And, and to be honest, some may say, ah, you know what, don't worry about asking yourself the question, are you really saved? Ah, but knowing the Scriptures here helps us, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are really in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? In other words, don't you know that the, that the, the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a down payment, as we've already talked in this series, as, as an engagement ring, as it were, for what you're going to inherit eternally? That is to say, as long as you're a real, genuine Christian. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a gift, as a down payment of all the blessings that you're going to inherit eternally. So based on this passage and a lot of others like in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we can see there's reason and necessity for us to do a self-evaluation of ourselves to say, boy, am I really a Christian? Because let's face it, the reality of the matter is, is there's a lot of people today that are self-identifying themselves as Christians that in reality are not. How do you know that? Brad, that's awfully judgmental of you. Well, for one, I can go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus says to me, in that day, in the great day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in, I name, in your name? Did I not teach in your name? And you know what he's going to say to them? Depart from me, I, what's it say? Never knew you. Not, oh, I knew you at one time, and by the way, then I forgot who you were. Oh, I knew you at one time, and then, then you remember you lost your salvation. Or I knew you at one time. He says, I never, never knew you. What does that mean? 
Not that he didn't know that we even existed. It means that he never knew them on an intimate, personal, saving level. For the believer in Jesus, for the genuine follower of Jesus Christ, there is absolute security of salvation. And there are people out there, there are churches out there that are teaching, listen, you can't really know that you know that you're saved. You really won't know that until you stand before Jesus and he says, enter into your rest, thou good and faithful servant. That's just craziness. I think, what Bible are these people reading? Don't they, don't they get that God is not kind of this vindictive, manipulative God that says, oh, follow me and one day you'll find out if you really make it in or not. Because then it becomes based on works, not on grace and all kinds of other things. There are certain test questions that we can use, and they're not invented of our own mind or invented of the mind and the will of God. They're given to us directly in Scripture that we should be able to pass in order to know that we know that we know that we're saved. You know, like in school, you have to take a test and you have to get over a certain percentage in order to pass. Well, it works a similar way for us to be able to examine the test questions, the litmus tests that are given to us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in order for us to kind of see, hey, do I pass the test? Do, do, do I uh, meet God's standards according to what I see here within His Word? Because if I don't, you, you know what the default answer is? If you don't meet those standards... If you, if you don't pass the test, probably you're not saved. You're not genuinely saved. Part of our task then has to be to discover what these test questions are to see if we're genuinely saved, right? We have to figure out what these test questions are, and so that's partly what we're going to be doing here in the next couple weeks Ultimately, by the way, I have a handout, if you're familiar with that, it's stuck inside your bulletin. Um, that's what is going to be up here on the screen in case you're unfamiliar with my strategies. <clears throat> Ultimately, assurance of your salvation comes through this process or this stage that we call sanctification. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if, you, if you're genuinely saved, this is the process, the time frame that you're living in right now. You live in a time to where God is in, in the process of making you holy. And just to kind of give some clarity to, to some of this, let me say a couple things. First, sanctification is simply this, being made holy. Being holy is just being set aside for the purposes and the use of God. God has, has called us to himself, right? He's called us his elect. He's called us his, his chosen people, a holy priesthood, right? A royal priesthood. And he set us aside for his will, for his good pleasure, to accomplish his will so that we can glorify him. And the byproduct of that is that we get to live with him forever and ever, Right? That's kind of how that works. There's three different stages that a Christian, if you've been converted or if, if you're wondering what are the different stages of a Christian's life, because I think these stages and qualifying them into these categories is useful, 
there's three different stages, and we've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. There's the initial stage of salvation. Salvation, listen, is this. It's, it's a being removed or salvation from the penalty of sin. And this is what we talked about last week. We talked about justification. God has legally declared that we are just. He's, it's our not guilty verdict. As we talked last week, I was talking with somebody just the other day, and they, they remembered me talking about the O.J. Simpson case the other day, and I thought, whoa, at least you remembered something along that, because the O.J. Simpson case, it wasn't necessarily whatever you believe about that. I'm not talking about that. Whether he was guilty or not guilty, a lot of people thought he was guilty, and if he was really guilty, the verdict said that he was not guilty. It didn't say he was innocent. It just said not guilty, right? Get it? And what the justification is, is God declaring us not guilty. How can he do such a thing? Well, he didn't bypass his wrath. He didn't just forego his wrath because a perfect, loving, holy God has to also execute his wrath. And so he executed his wrath on the person of Jesus Christ at the moment of Calvary at the cross. And what we call that is substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute. And as a result, he covered, that's what atonement means, he covered our sins. Therefore, God can make us justified. He can legally declare us holy. Now, what happens then is that all happens instantaneously. And then something begins. Not that you are holy. The righteousness of God is imputed upon you. But let's face it, at the moment of salvation, at the moment of salvation, you can still have all kinds of baggage and bad habits and sinful things, right? God converts people in the midst of all their stuff. You don't have to get your life in order for God to use you. That's the beauty of salvation. He saves you from all that stuff. And then you begin a process that's called sanctification. And sanctification is salvation from the power of sin. In this lifetime, God changes us, sometimes instantaneously, sometimes progressively, and most of the time both, and he changes us more into his likeness and makes us more holy. A lot of times I hear people saying, boy, you know, I feel more like a sinner than I feel like a saint, but the reality, the truth of the matter is, is God has declared that you're a saint, because you're his. His righteousness has been imputed upon you. And then what happens is we're to grow up into that sainthood. We grow up into this holiness and grow up into this righteousness. And that will continue your whole life. Listen, there's some denominations out there that will say that you can come to this plateau to where you'll never, ever, ever sin again in this lifetime. Listen, that isn't taught anywhere in Scripture. That is, that's based on some erroneous understandings of three or four passages. The truth of the matter is, is you and I are always going to battle with sin while we're here in this world. But there's going to come a time, because God has saved us, whether at death or at the, um, at the second appearing of Christ, right, that we're going to be removed or we're going to be saved from the presence of sin and that's when the christian is glorified 
whether the rapture happens first, and what is the rapture? The rapture is when Jesus comes back to take those who belong to him, the church, up with him for the wedding feast of the Lamb, for the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? That's what's going to happen, and that's going to begin to usher in all of these terrible and tragic things that we read about in the book of Revelation, seven years of a crazy tribulation, okay? And, and then three and a half, well, three and a half years of very bad things, and then three and a half years of absolute, absolute, horrible, unimaginable atrocities, okay? So whether you're taken up in the rapture or whether you die first, what happens is to, to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and you're going to be glorified. Your body, this is that time, remember at funerals, a lot of times we talk about how um, this person is no more suffering, uh, no, no more pain. Um, their body, yeah, it might have been old, it might have been decrepit, it might have been cancer-ridden, it could have had all kinds of, of um, issues and diseases, but now they are no longer experiencing any pain. That's because they're glorified. That's the third and final stage of a, that a Christian goes through. So for those of you who have heard it being taught that you can uh, completely overcome sin and never live within sin here in this, in this lifetime, that's just not going to happen. That's not what, taught, is what is taught in the Scriptures. What happens is this sanctification then is born out of justification. This process that God begins in your life begins to happen. It, it, it's like it's born. That life of sanctification comes out of justification. So you can't have somebody being made holy if they haven't genuinely been saved. Does that make sense? You can't have somebody who's going through the process and the experience of sanctification if they've never been justified. You have to be justified, you have to be legally declared righteous by God before you can go through the process and the refining process of God, which we call sanctification. And God is in the process of making each and every one of us right now, at this very moment of time, He wants to make us holy. He wants to make us usable for His will. He wants to refine us. He wants to mold us. He wants to shape us. And by the way, this garbage that is being taught out there that God doesn't want any pain for your life and God wants you to earn the highest income that you possibly can earn for your life is just a bunch of bunk. Because God's good pleasure, He can do what He wants and desires and He desires the best for His children and the best for His children is not for us to prosper here in this lifetime but for us to be formed for eternity and for His great glory. That's God's best. You are precious to Him. The truth of the matter is, according to the Scriptures, you are His treasure. And just in case you're questioning this, let me give you the short list of some scriptural truths that happen at the moment of salvation, and then you can begin to see, just begin to see how precious and how wonderful you really must be to God. What happens at the moment of salvation? You're forgiven, and as a result, you become a child of God. You've been adopted in. You've been grafted. You no longer have a feeling to, or a need to feel condemned because, therefore, there is no, now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
You have no reason to have any fear because God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power. You you have direct access to God. No longer do we need priests or somebody to intercede on our behalf because now the curtain is torn, the veil is torn, and we have direct access right into the throne room of God. And so when we pray, we can pray directly to God the Father. We don't longer need any priests. You receive a down payment, uh, a, a payment in earnest. That's the Holy Spirit. He's your engagement ring of all the great blessings that you're going to inherit eternally. This is the down payment. You are declared acceptable to God. That's what justification is. You now have a heavenly citizenship that, listen, cannot be revoked. There is nothing that can revoke your heavenly citizenship. Nothing, according to the scriptures, can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's not that there is some sort of a sideways way that somehow you can be separated from the love of God once you've been adopted and made his, his children because he has declared that what he has began in you, he will bring it upon what? Completion. He's not gonna forget to do the work that he has promised to do in your life. Immediately, you're free from the burden of the law because now you've been freed through the grace of Jesus Christ. You're delivered um, from the power of darkness and sin. No longer are you bound to sin because you've been given freedom through the spirit of Jesus Christ. You are a gift from God. This also happens at the moment of salvation. You are a gift from God the Father to Jesus Christ the Son. You are a special, precious gift to Jesus from God. Now, I wouldn't imagine that God the Father would give Jesus the Son junk. That means how precious we are. We become a a member of a royal and holy priesthood. We become Christ's inheritance you inherit all things belong, that belong to Christ. By the way, if you've ever wanted things, don't worry. One day, according to the scriptures, you're going to inherit the earth. So why want to get it now? Because it's coming to you later. Everything is going to come back to those who are God's chosen holy people. You receive, according to the scriptures, every spiritual blessing, according to the book of Ephesians, You inherit a peace that uh, surpasses the comprehension that this world has. A peace that surpasses all what? Understanding, according to the book of Philippians. You are united to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are made one. You will live forever with a new body that is perfect in quality. So why worry about the things? Listen, even those people that Jesus healed when he was doing his earthly ministry, they died again. Lazarus, remember the story of Lazarus and Jesus called him after the tomb after he, I love the King James, he stinketh, right? He had to die again. But you and I are going to be glorified someday to where we're going to be removed from the presence and the power of sin. Really, death that has come to us in our mortal bodies in the spiritual realm is all a product of sin. So removing us from the the presence of sin means that you and I will never experience death or decay or issues again. One day you will live forever in a place where the presence of sin has completely been abolished. This, by the way, is only the short list 
of what happens at the moment of salvation. Do you see how precious you are to God? Do you see how great of a salvation He has has given to you? Can you see? I hope you can begin to see why knowing these truths will set you free. You might say, well, what do you mean set me free? Well, set you free, not just intellectually, but spiritually in this issue of, of guilt that so many Christians carry unnecessarily. Or this spirit, or, or, or this, this attitude of, boy, I might lose my salvation. I might lose my salvation. Have you ever heard, the, this has been an ongoing debate for hundreds and hundreds of years, can I lose my salvation or, or will, will God preserve me? We're going to talk about this in this series and why that matters because what you believe about those things impacts how you will live. So often our society is led by the impulse that they have in the moment, especially today. We're no longer in a crockpot society, you know. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I was given a $5 allowance. Well, that was, that was boosted up from the $3 allowance to a $5 allowance. And then, um, have you ever really, really wanted something so bad? Today, we've got credit cards. I had to save for my things. And, and I remember I wanted this air pistol. I wanted it bad. But that air pistol was $55. Do you know how many weeks on a $5 allowance that is? Right? Knowing the truth and knowing those things really matters. And this, this idea of impulse, it's something so much more contemporary, isn't it? Good things, like Heinz 57, good things come to those who wait. It, our society is oftentimes led by emotions, right? If it feels good, do it. Let your emotions guide you. Oh, listen to your heart until you get to Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, what, the height, the heart is deceitful above all things, right? You're telling somebody to listen to that which is deceitful in your, in your chest. <laughs> Our society is led by a lot of things that we as Christians should not be led by. We need to be led by the rock-solid truth of God's words. If you trusted your emotions, if you trusted your impulses, all of us would be up and down and have all kinds of issues. Oftentimes, circumstances steer our emotions, don't they? That's why we need to avoid being led by emotions. So what does all this stuff have to do with assurance of your salvation? How do these truths about sanctification Provide security for the believer. Here we go. What you believe about the nature of your salvation will impact your assurance of your salvation. Do you see what I'm saying? What you believe is the, the makeup, the constitution of your salvation. What you believe about that will impact whether you feel that there is security for the believer, whether there is assurance of genuine salvation for the believer. At this this point in time, according to Philippians 2.12, we need to be about working out our salvation with, you know what it says in Philippians? Fear and trembling. 
In other words, we, we need to be study, dedicating ourselves to the word of God so that we can understand this great salvation that God has given to us. And here's what ends up happening. As we become more holy through the process of sanctification, our confidence in God grows because we experience more of his track record. There's these fascinating things that happens in relationships. Have you ever had this really solid relationship? I hope your marriage looks this way. That when you first get married, you trust each other, but have you ever noticed that young married couples a lot of times go to mom and dad still? When I first got married, I, I was irritated by that. Sorry, I love you, my mother-in-law, but it bothered me. I'm her husband. But as time has gone on, hopefully my track record and her trust ability in me has increased. And so what happens is we grow in the stability of that relationship and that relationship becomes firmer and stronger and we begin to understand that neither of us are going anywhere. We're going to get through this together somehow and we'll work it out. You know, the same thing happens as we grow in our sanctification we begin to really understand who God is and that God isn't ever going to leave us or forsake us, that his track record is impeccable and that God loves us so much that he wants to give us every spiritual blessing and so what ends up happening is our confidence in God begins to grow and you know what a byproduct of that is? Your assurance of your salvation begins to grow. In fact, to be honest, you cannot have true genuine assurance of your salvation if you don't experience testing and trials. That's what the scriptures teach us is that as we experience tests and trials and how we handle those tests and trials reveals the content and the character which God is making inside of us. So before I go too far, I want to finish today. This is a really backwards way of me presenting a lesson. But I want to finish today, and a lot of times I try to keep the, the text closer to the front, but I want to finish today where I'm going to pick up again next week. And that's in the book of Second Peter. So if you have your Bible, can I encourage you to open your Bible? Second Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We're going to skip just a few verses of introduction, and we're going to go to verse 15. And I'm going to try every ability within myself to restrain myself from wanting to teach every little thing that I possibly can teach on this because we're going to be back into the same passage next week. And just in case you're wondering about these things of assurance of salvation, in case you're wondering that does God really love you, take a look at what God has given to us through Second Peter. Let's look at this together. And if you don't have your Bible, I have it up here on the screen uh, through the English Standard Version. But if you do have your Bible, let me really encourage you, beg you to be in your own text. His divine power, whose divine power? God's divine power has granted to us all things. Some things, a few things, no. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the what? The knowledge of Him. In other words, you need to know him. You need to know the information about him through the knowledge of him who has called us his own glory and excellence. 
who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, that you might be saved. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, you've been justified and you've been sanctified. For this very reason, for the reason of being called out and being justified and sanctified, make every effort to supplement your faith with what? Virtue. And here's the pattern. You go from faith to virtue, and you add virtue with knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, self-control with exercising that self-control consistently, steadfastness, and with exercising self-control consistently, or steadfastness, you add what? Godliness. And with godliness, I find this fascinating, here comes the pinnacle here, brotherly affection. You would think that it would be easier to love your brother, that that would be lower on the list, but because we grow in godliness, have you ever had somebody that you, it's just hard to love them, <laughs> right? Do you have a, a, a family member that it's just hard to love them? You love them because you've been called to love them. That's been an ongoing joke that several of us have. I love you, Brad, because Jesus tells me I need to love you. In godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Listen, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, because that's the process of sanctification. Sanctification is where, uh, a process whereby you and I grow in our godliness more and more and more and more. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, your practical everyday living will reflect that which God wants you to live right? You have to have these growing qualities. Because remember in John chapter 15, if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much, what? Fruit. So to bear fruit, what's the process look like? These are the qualities that need to be increasing as we grow in sanctification to, to bear much fruit. <clears throat> For whoever, now listen, here's the opposite side of the coin, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, these are oftentimes the people that we refer to as carnal Christians, if there really can be such a thing. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, what's this? Confirm your calling and election. In other words, to make sure your salvation, make sure that you're really saved. Confirm your calling and your election, for if you practice these qualities, these things that we just read, you will never, what, fall. For in this way, there, there will be richly provided for you in an in entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is the beginning of, of a pattern which we can identify with a few test questions and only a few test questions of how we can evaluate if we are truly genuinely saved. By the way, if you're saying, boy, this is beginning to really whet my appetite, on the back of your handout today, based off of 1 John, there are 11 test questions 
that you can ask yourself, based off of the book of 1 John, am I genuinely saved? These are litmus tests, right? These are the things that you need to pass the test to be able to know, is your salvation real? So I share these with you today for the process of sanctification and becoming more holy and to make your calling sure to find out that you have truly an assurance of salvation. Now listen, we're going to need to talk again next week more about this nature of salvation. Can you lose your salvation? And if so, how and under what circumstances can I lose it? Like, oh man, I lost my keys the other day. Where did my salvation go this morning? I don't know where it went. Can you lose your salvation that way? Can you kind of neglect your salvation to where eventually it's gone? Or, or once God has saved you, are you really saved? Let's look at these things right from the scriptures because what you believe about these things will impact how you live. It will impact how you exercise your faith. Let me invite the worship team to come back up. I hope today begins to, to get the, the juices flowing and you're thinking about your faith, thinking more about God's great salvation as we're calling this series and how you can, as the scripture says here in Second Peter, make your calling and election sure. Let's pray together that God would begin to do these things in your heart if he hasn't already begun to do so already. Father in heaven, I thank you for how much you love us I thank you for calling us your own. I thank you for these great gifts of salvation. I, I just know from my own personal experience, Father, how, how just unsettling it is to go through life not knowing truths from your word. I, I pray that you would reveal those truths to me as I study your word and then Give me the strength and give me the ability to pass that on to your holy people. Father, help us to know that we've been called to live holy lives, lives that are separated and different from this world. Because in doing so, we bring great glory to you. In doing so, we make our election and our calling sure. In doing so, we don't bring any reproach upon your name because others can look upon us and say, see, that person is sinning. Father, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are, are worthy of the calling to which you've called us. Father, I thank you for this church and for the people in it, and I pray that you would strengthen them, strengthen their hearts and their minds and their resolve to follow you, their resolve to, to make you the centerpiece of their household. Because without you, we are, as Paul says, nothing or done. Father, help us to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength as you teach us over and over in the scriptures. Thank you for the assurance that you've given to us about our salvation. Help us to make that calling sure so that we may know that we are, inherit to, uh, that we are inheriting an eternal kingdom forever, forever. I pray this in the name of Jesus today. Amen.